Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new sports book, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is Randy Roberts, Distinguished Professor of History at Purdue University. We are discussing his book, Joe Lewis, Hard Times Man, just out in paperback from Yale University Press in January 2012. Boxing is no longer the prominent part of sports culture that it once was. Even when I was a kid, a big championship fight was a major event, and the names of top boxers were as well known as the stars in other sports. Randy Roberts' biography of Joe Lewis is not just a portrait of the champion fighter, it is a picture of this era when boxing was America's most popular and most important sport. But the book also looks at a time when the idea of a black man holding the heavyweight championship was extraordinary, and for many whites, intolerable. Joe Lewis's story is one of a climb from rags to riches, of an athlete's remarkable talent honed by relentless practice, set against the backdrop of racial division, economic hardship, and international tension. Randy writes Joe Lewis's story in a lively, engaging, and insightful manner, and this approach to his subject comes across in our interview. So let's turn to the conversation. It's a pleasure to welcome Randy Roberts to New Books and Sports. Randy, thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So if I may, I'd like to ask you first to give some, some background about yourself. You've written on a wide range of subjects, Charles Lindbergh, John Wayne, the Alamo, the Vietnam War, but a constant subject of interest throughout your career, going back to your PhD dissertation, has been sports history. So I'll ask you, what brought you to research sports way back as a graduate student in history, and why do you keep returning to subjects in sports history? Good question. I started working in sports in graduate school because you know, at at that time, there was a. This is we're talking about back in the 1970s. Now, there was a great deal of interest in trying to tell the story of Americans from the bottom up. Okay, instead of looking at 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 the diplomats and the presidents and the major politicians and the literary figures, there was an interest in what did the working class Americans think? What did they like? What, you know, what was their experience like? What was the experience like for the poor in America, for women in America, for African Americans? And, and one of the things that people were trying to tell is the story of labor in America. And they, were ta- they talked about class formation and unions and that sort of thing. And I had, I had done some work in, uh, in, in, in places that had lots of working class men in it. And I knew what they were interested in, and they were interested <laughs> in sports. And I felt if, if to tell the story of America from the bottom up, that has to include 
the history of popular culture, sports, movies, radio, television. This is what people talked about. You know, they weren't talking about Marx in the late in in, in working class bars. They were talking about boxers. Mm-hmm. So, since that fit very well with my interest. I was interested in sports. I was interested in movies that I said to my major professor, a guy by the name of Burl Noggle, a wonderful, wonderful man. I said, you know, I kind of like to do a dissertation. I'd like to look at the career of Jack Dempsey and see what that says about a particular historiographical problem in the 1920s. So your dissertation on Jack Dempsey became your first book. And since then, you've written about Jack Johnson and Mike Tyson, two other heavyweight champions, and now we have your biography of Joe Lewis. So what is it that you find particularly compelling as a historian in writing about boxing? Boxing is such a primal sport, and the heavyweight champion particularly has a relationship, some kind of a symbiotic relationship with the age in which he lives. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver, famous African-American radical back in the 1960s, wrote a book called Soul and Ice. And in that book, there's a line something like, the heavyweight champion is, or the boxing is a two-fisted testing ground of masculinity in America. And the heavyweight champion as a symbol is the real Mr. America. I think Eldridge Cleaver was on to something, you know, that, that, that our hopes, our fears, our ambitions, our nightmares, our anxieties, somehow shine through a heavyweight champion. You know, he he becomes what we are because we're constantly searching for what we are and and, and we use all sorts of symbolic figures to talk about things more than just boxing. So if you go back to a John L. Sullivan, a Jack Dempsey, a Jack Johnson, a Joe Lewis, a Muhammad Ali, they're not just fighters, okay? And their fights become symbolic events they become the theater of our age really um if if, if you look at a, an alley fraser fight for example when they went at it and uh, well they had three classic fights i could ask a person back at that time are you for lewis excuse me are you for uh, alley are you for fraser well the answer to that told me a lot about the person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it told me about their politics about the, how they feel about nixon how they you know it, mm-hmm. it it was more than just a fight and so i've tried to look at some of the, what i feel are the iconic heavyweight champions i've looked at jack johnson i've looked at jack dempsey i've looked at joe lewis uh you know there are other high, iconic there's not a lot of them but there are some other ones and i find them interesting to talk about because their fights it, it becomes a real kind of a, a black-and-white event. You know, mm-hmm. it's just one person against one person, a Max Schmeling mm-hmm. versus a Joe Lewis, you know, uh, Nazi Germany versus American democracy. Such crucial events. So if I can, I'd like to ask about your, your approach in writing about boxing, I guess your style in writing. And uh, the Joe Lewis book offers a, a vivid sense of the popularity of the sport and the glamour that surrounded boxing in the mid-20th century. You describe all of the celebrities who came to these championship matches at, at Yankee Stadium. But you also describe, in, in really grueling terms, the violence of the sport. And there, there's one passage in particular when, you, when you're recounting the punches 
that Lewis threw to the body of, of Max Schmeling in their rematch in 1938. And I was reading the book, I was reading that chapter on a plane, uh, and, it, and it made me cringe. It made me gasp to the point that the person next to me looked over to see, you know, what was I, what was I reading? And it was just striking as you describe the, the ferocity and the damage that Lewis's punches caused. And so I'll ask you, and as you write about boxing, what is the, what is the picture of the sport that you're trying to present? I try to present the sport from a num- number of different angles. You know, fights are symbolic events. And I try to talk about that. You know, I try to talk about the symbolism between Nazi Germany and the, the fascists, you know, between black and white, between a, a white fighter and a black fighter, say a Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries. That boxing matches are also physical contests, and they're violent. And, you know, a person, you know, it's one thing to say that uh, Joe Lewis hit Schmeling in the side, okay, mm-hmm. or in close to the kidneys. It's another thing to say he hit him so hard that he broke a vertebrae in his back, okay? Suddenly that becomes yeah. a little bit more painful. That drills home, you know, the, 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 the physical aspect of the sport. I mean, we watch football games today, and we see players, you know, they're hit. They're hit hard. Well, you can be hit hard, and you can be knocked out and have a concussion and maybe and, and maybe carry that hit with you for the rest of your life in some ways. And so, uh, you know, I like boxing as a sport. You know, I love the history of boxing. Mm-hmm. And in my books, I try to talk in, in a very non-academic way about the sport, about the characters in the sport, how the sport, how, how fighters fight, how they train, how, the type of impact that punches carry, and, 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 and the result, the physical result of an engagement. Well, let's turn to Joe Lewis. So uh, could you give us a sketch of, of Joe Lewis's early background, uh, where he came from, and, and what his family was like? Joe Lewis comes from literally the end of a dirt road. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's born in Alabama. Uh, he comes from a large family. His father's a sharecropper. Lewis receives virtually no education. Um, his father is later committed to an insane asylum, a Jim Crow insane asylum in Alabama. His mother remarries um, to a, into another large family. Lewis himself is inarticulate. He stutters. He doesn't because he stutters. He doesn't talk much. He's a bit of a loner. Uh, nice guy, uh, but if you can imagine, you know, suddenly you're in a family and there's you know, twelve or so kids around. It's easy to get lost in a family like that. And I think Lewis would have easily gotten lost. Um, probably the great break, if you looked at Lewis, Joe Lewis, when he was born, and he was born in 1914, uh, uh, and, and you said, what is the chances that anybody's going to hear from him, that this guy is going to become famous, you would say zero. You know, he would have been among the bottom of the, of the American population that anybody would have predicted, that anybody would have heard from. However, his family moves to Detroit when Lewis is still young. And Detroit, it's, he's part of the great black migration in the teens and the 20s that move into the industrial north, into the Detroits, into the Chicago's, the Cleveland's, the New York's, the Philadelphia's, uh, looking for a job. And for many Americans, particularly Southern Americans in 
Alabama, Tennessee. The place that they looked was Detroit. You know, the, mm-hmm. the idea of Henry Ford, a $5 a day you can get for work in Detroit. Well, they go chasing that particular uh, rainbow. They get there. They do okay. They move from one house to another house, kind of moving up, and then the Depression hits. You know, what does Joe Lewis do? He has no, he's had virtually no education, kind of a manual education. They, they thought he was a bit, maybe even retarded, uh, in, in, uh, in, 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 in Detroit. And, and, you know, what, what are they going to do? What is he going to do? Some manual labor? But there isn't much manual labor. Then Joe Lewis is invited in. One of his friends gets him to go into a gymnasium. Okay. And he goes in and he puts on the gloves, and he starts to train, and he discovers something that he can do exceptionally. I mean, I would have liked to talk to Lewis. I, 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 I would have loved to hear what he said about this moment. I mean, here's a guy that is obscure, that is quiet, that is thoroughly unexceptional in all ways, and now he discovers something that he's exceptional at. He discovers kind of his special ability. I mean, if anybody discovers that, that's that, you know that's a wonderful, wonderful moment. Mm-hmm. And Joe Lewis never turns back. I mean, he gives himself to the sport. He trains seriously. He listens to he listens for advice. He's he's a quick learner, and he can do things that other people simply can't do. I mean, he hits very hard and when he hits people they stay hit and when they're hurt he's able to finish the job uh probably better than any fighter ever so lewis had had great success as an amateur fighting mostly in in the midwest and he made a quick rise in the professional heavyweight ranks but one of the obstacles he faced which you discuss in the book was the legacy of jack johnson so could you talk about johnson whom you've written about and uh, how his career, Jack Johnson's career, posed a problem for a rising black boxer like Joe Lewis. Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight champion. Uh, and I guess to understand Jack Johnson, you have to go back to the, to the racist times, the Jim Crow times of the late 19th century. And the heavyweight champion at that time was a guy by the name of John L. Sullivan mythic, iconic name. Sullivan, in a challenge that he made to, for other people to fight him, says, look, I will fight anybody for X amount of money, first come, first serve. However, he said, he added a little caveat. In this challenge, I include only white fighters. I've never fought a black fighter, and I never will. Okay, that became known in boxing as the color line. Okay, the idea is the heavyweight championship belongs to the Caucasian race. Fighters, champions, do not defend their title against a black challenger. And so Jim Corbett, who defeated Sullivan, said the same thing. Uh, you know, and, and then we had other fighters who came along who said, uh, uh, you know, essentially... The, the same thing, you know. We we went from we went from Corbett to Fitzsimmons to uh, Jim Jeffries. All of them are saying the same thing: won't fight a black fighter, even though there's some great 
great black fighters at that time. People like Sam Langford, Joe Jeanette, um, Harry Wills, eventually. Well, what happens is boxing starts to decline. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that progressive Americans want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to stop people from drinking. They want to clean up industries, stop child labor. They're trying to get rid of what they feel are barbaric practices, and boxing fits into it. So boxing is kind of pushed out into the dusty corners of Western America. Finally, Jim Jeffries retires. Okay, Eventually, the title goes to a guy by the name of Tommy Burns. Tommy Burns, Canadian fighter. Uh, he really can't make any, very much money in this mm-hmm. sport. He's champion. He goes to England. He goes to France. He goes to Australia. Finally, he's offered a significant amount of money to defend the title against Jack Johnson, a black fighter down in Sydney, Australia, in 1908. And he says, okay, $30,000, it's a lot of money. I'll take it. You know, Mm -hmm. the heck with whatever this great white or whatever this, you know, Jim Crow tradition is all about, you know, the color line. So he fights Jack Johnson, and Jack Johnson wins. And then Jack Johnson simply enrages the American public. You know, he's flamboyant at a time when, you know, white Americans felt black Americans should not be flamboyant, should not gloat over defeating white uh, fighters. He marries, uh, he cavorts with white women. He takes, uh, marries a white woman, marries several, three white women. Uh, and, And he just kind of upsets white America. It, it's, it's as if Jack Johnson decided that in his life he was going to upset as many white Americans as possible. You know, everything he did upset white Americans. I mean, he lived a completely free and liberated life at an, in an age when it was very difficult for an African American to live this type of life. So, there were attempts to defeat him, you know, great white hopes. This was during the era of great white hopes. Eventually, he's defeated. In 1915, a large fighter by the name of, uh, of, of excuse me, Jess Willard, defeats in Havana, Cuba, defeats Johnson. Afterwards, people said, in the fight game, and Americans generally, never again. Mm-hmm. Okay, we will not, you know, that color line is now sacrosanct. We, there will not be another black heavyweight champion. We do not want a repeat of Jack Johnson. You have to remember, when Jack Johnson fought his biggest fight, the ex-champion, Jim Jeffries, who had retired, came back in 1910, July 4th, in Reno, Nevada. They fought, Jack Johnson defeated uh, uh, Jim Jeffries, this fight led to widespread racial rioting throughout America. It's one of the only two or three events in our history that has precipitated widespread racial rioting. You know, scores of people are killed. You know, hundreds of people are injured. You know, thousands, millions of dollars of property, maybe not millions, but certainly thousands of dollars of property destroyed. So it's not going to happen again. So Joe Lewis, a heavyweight, is breaking into fighting and all around them, people are saying, you're great, but you're never going to be champion. Mm-hmm. You know, there's never going to be another black champion. 
Of course, in a boxing story, a key role is always played by the handlers of the fighter. So can you tell us about uh, Joe Lewis's managers and how they handled his early career? Yeah, Lewis had two managers. His main manager was a man by the name of John Roxborough. Okay, and uh, John Roxborough, in order, John Roxborough was a numbers runner in Detroit. Okay, uh, and and wealthy supported supported other black athletes, supported black political organizations as number runners often did. But he felt he needed more money, so he brought in a second manager, a guy by the name of Julian Black from Chicago, also a numbers runner, and they hired uh, a tremendous guy by the name of Jack Blackburn, a great trainer, a guy that really knew boxing, an ex-professional fighter that knew the game inside or out, to train Joe, to teach Joe how to, how to be a great fighter. And, you know, their idea then was to bring Lewis along. But, and, and, and Lewis turns professional in 1934, and immediately, 34 and 35, have a string of victories, most of them knockout, overwhelmingly most of them knockout. But he's not really going any place, okay? I mean, he's fighting some good fighters, he's knocking out good fighters, but he's mostly in Chicago and Detroit area. He goes to the West Coast a little bit, but it's mostly Chicago, Midwest, Detroit. Um, the mecca of boxing at this time was New York. Madison Square Garden was the epicenter of where real boxing took place. It just so happens that in New York, there's a power play for who's going to dominate the sport. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Johnston that dominates, is the matchmaker at Madison Square Garden. But another promoter, uh, a guy that's been around selling tickets and around boxing for a long time, guy by the name of Mike Jacobs wants to get on the inside. You know, he wants to control the sport. And to control the sport, you need a great heavyweight. You know, the person who controls the heavyweight champion, a promoter who controls the heavyweight champion, traditionally is going to control the sport. And he's looking for a great heavyweight champion. Most of them are, are, are controlled by the, by the Johnston group, uh, by Jimmy Johnston. And he sees Lewis as his chance to get a great heavyweight. So he signs a promotional deal with Joe Lewis and brings Lewis to New York and gives him a big fight. I mean, a huge fight. He fights a former champion, a guy by the name of Primo Canera, in June. You know, outdoor fight in June, Yankee Stadium. That's a key date. Um, and, and it makes Joe Lewis's career. Now Joe Lewis is not just a good fighter. He's a contender. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Jacobs matches them against other former champions. Lewis fights Max Bear and knocks out Max Bear. And, you know, he, he's fought, trying to fight and trying to get a chance to fight for that title. He's fighting former champions. Primo Canera, Max Bear in 1935, early in, in 1936 then, he's matched against another former champion, a guy by the name of Max Schmeling from Germany. So let's backtrack a bit. When, when, when Mike Jacobs begins working with Joe Lewis, uh, he has some pretty 
pretty direct rules in terms of how Lewis is to uh, conduct himself to get a, to get around this legacy of of Jack Johnson. So, what is the advice that he gives to Lewis? Well, it's Jacobs, it's Roxborough, it's Black, it's everybody that's in the Joe Lewis camp. Mm-hmm. The idea of Joe Lewis is be an anti Jack Johnson. A, you don't gloat over fighters when you knock people out. You're stone faced. You help them up. You shake your their hands. You don't gloat. You know. B, you don't have anything to do with white women. Mm-hmm. Okay, you never, never get photographed alone with a white woman. Okay. Uh, C, you know, you never go into a cabaret, a cafe, a bar by yourself. You know, you are always escorted. You are always have, a, you know, you're with a group of people. You are not in a bar kind of looking around, seeing what opportunities there are. Um, you know, you're quiet. You're dignified. You read the Bible. You, you, know, you are non-threatening. Yes, you're threatening in the ring. You're great. But outside of the ring, you're, you're, you're it, it, it's almost as if you're pacified in some way. You know, you don't threat the white power structure. Everything Jack Johnson did, you do the opposite. So then how did the white, the white uh, press, uh, sports writers, what did they make of Lewis when he was rising as a contender here in, in 34 and 35? If you, if you read the sports writings from 34, 35, they're unbelievably racist. I mean, you know, Joe Lewis was, you know, he was compared mostly to animals, you know, the brown bomber, you know, I mean, uh, uh, every nickname that he had had a racial dimension to it, you know, I mean, uh, the black panther, the sepia slugger, you know, whatever you can, whatever alliteration usually they could find that would combine race with oftentimes an animal um, was Joe Lewis. You know, it's as if, Joe Lewis was never Joe Lewis. He was, you know, the brown bomber. He was the the black fighter from the Midwest. He was the coward fighter from Detroit. He, you know, but it was always racially tied. And Joe Lewis was was pictured as 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 really kind of something coming out of the jungle, threatening. Okay, uh, dangerous. He was like a panther. He was like a lion. He was like some side, you know, heartless cruel. Uh, you know, anybody thinks that sports writers, you know, love Joe Lewis, have never read what they wrote about him. I mean, it was, it was, you, I'm, and it was racist from sports writers like Paul Gallico, who was considered a, a real liberal uh, politically and socially, but mm-hmm. they weren't racially. And so even the, uh, the advice he had been given by his camp to, to not gloat when he, when he defeated a, another fighter, to, uh, to basically just be serious and stoic when he got in the ring, the anti-Jack Johnson, they turned that against him. Sure. What they looked at as Joe Lewis is that he didn't speak much, okay? He was being the anti-Jack Johnson, and by inclination, Joe Lewis was a much better listener. I mean, he was a funny guy. He was a smart guy. He could say funny things. But initially, this is a guy that was raised in the Jim Crow South Mm -hmm. and in a very black section of Detroit. He had not been around white people much, Mm -hmm. and he was a bit uncomfortable at first in 34 and 35, and so he tended to be very reticent and very quiet. And they turned this into the idea that, you know, that he was unintelligent, that he was, you know, somehow 
below the norm. Uh, yeah, so Joe Lewis really couldn't do anything to win. But at least he wasn't threatening the social norms. Mm-hmm. You know, at least uh, when he got married in 1930, in 1935, he married an African-American woman. He didn't marry a white woman. So I want to ask about the Max Bear fight in in September 1935, and this seemed, uh, you know, from the book, this seemed to be a fight that was, and you talked about these symbolic fights. This seemed to be one that was particularly charged with a racial tension, with with whites siding with Bear, and with blacks siding with Lewis. Could you could you talk about that? I think that's true, but I think for most of uh, Lewis's career with the possible exception of Schmeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Generally, I think white Americans sided with white fighters mm-hmm. against Lewis. Although, even when he becomes champion, and he's a popular champion, uh, most Americans will still side with the white fighters, who tended to be the, uh, who always were the underdog, I'm not tending to be the underdog, they were the underdog, so maybe that's a little bit natural. But yeah, I mean, there was, uh, there was always this tension between black and white. And quite frankly, the promoters, Mike Jacobs, played played this up. You know, mm-hmm. this is what made people interested in the sport. Generally speaking, that black-white contrast sold tickets. Uh, you know, most Americans were not; they didn't care that much about boxing. They liked the symbolism of boxing. You know, black-white, German-American, that type of uh, a contrast. They're looking for a narrative. They're looking for a storyline. In the fights. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk about what uh, what Lewis meant then for Black Americans in the 1930s? Wow! I mean, Lewis was the greatest symbolic figure in Black America in the 1930s. Um, you know, I, I I entitled the book Joe Lewis Hard Times Man. And part of it comes from uh, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, mm-hmm. uh, in which the writer of, of the autobiography said, and if I can quote, said, when times get really hard, really tough, he, God, he means, he always sends you somebody. In an impression, it was tough on everybody, but twice as hard on the coward, and he sent us Joe. Joe Lewis was to lift colored people's hearts. Okay, I mean, you know, that's what Lewis meant to him. I mean, Lewis was... He was at a time when black Americans were far more unemployed than white Americans, uh, when black Americans were far more disadvantaged than white Americans, when the doors were slammed shut for, for black Americans. Joe Lewis meant victory. Okay, Joe Lewis got in the ring and knocked out white fighters. Uh, you, know, you, you can read... Maya Angelou, you can read Richard Wright, you can read uh, Ralph Ellison, you can read you know, the, the great black writers from the period, and they all extol what Joe Lewis meant to them. I mean, he was, he, he was, he was fighting for all of them. There's a one great story of Lena Horne, and she was listening to a Joe Lewis fight. She was she was playing a gig in Cincinnati. And so in between, she would go back and she would listen. It was a Schmeling fight, the fight that Joe Lewis was defeated. And by the end of the evening, she's crying and she's, her performance is suffering. And, and her mother says, you know, 
Lena, what are you doing? You don't know that guy. You know, why are you so upset? And, 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 and she says, in effect, she says, he's fighting for all of us. You know, he is, uh, you know, he is our hope, and our hope is being dashed. And a victory by Joe Lewis lifted the souls of, of black Americans across America who listened to the fight assiduously on the radio, celebrated after the victories. Joe Lewis was special. I don't, there's never been a fighter who carried the hopes of so many people into the ring with him as Joe Lewis. So then let's turn to the, the Schmeling fight. So the first uh, uh, Joe Lewis-Max Schmeling fight was in 1936. Uh, Schmeling knocked out Lewis in, in the first match. Uh, in the intervening time, uh, Lewis defeated James J. Braddock in 1937 to become heavyweight champion. So when when uh, Lewis and Schmeling meet again, it's not only a, a rematch; it's it's also uh, for the heavyweight title. And uh, but there's added significance in that this match takes place in in 1938. We have growing international tension. And uh, so how is it? Uh, is this the fight? where Lewis gains the support of, of white America. How, how does this fight uh, different than the first Lewis Schmeling fight in 1936? Well, we've had two more years of, of aggressive posturing and behavior by Adolf Hitler. Uh, you know, Adolf Hitler came to power in January 33. By 1938, it was pretty clear to a lot of people that eventually there was going to be war. Uh, in, involving Nazi Germany. Whether the United States would be pulled into the war or not, who knows. But Hitler was was definitely an aggressive figure on the world scene. Um, and, and so Americans saw, you know, this fight as a contrast between two world systems. You know, America peaceful, America democratic, America following the rule of law, America liberal, how liberal is it's questionable, but this is the this is the narrative that Americans saw the fight in. As opposed to this, we have Schmeling, a representative of Nazi Germany, Schmeling, who had visited, who had watched the first fight with Adolf Hitler, you know, laughing and you know, Schmeling, who was feted by the by the Nazi regime, uh, and so Schmeling came to represent you know the racism of Nazi Germany, the aggressiveness of Nazi Germany, the warlike tendencies of Nazi Germany. Whether Schmeling was all these things is another question. That's the way he was viewed. So when Schmeling and and Lewis fight in June of 1938 in, in excuse me in Yankee Stadium, I mean it's it's a morality play taking place. It's it's Nazi Germany versus liberal democratic America. You know, it's German racism versus American tolerance, for want of a better word. Uh, so uh, a great deal was riding on this fight. You know, this is a fight that will be listened to by the biggest radio. Uh, it's the biggest radio event in American, in American history up until this time. You know, maybe 100 million people worldwide tune into this fight. If you can imagine, here are two fighters. And, and the focus of the world is on them. I mean, there's this great picture in a newspaper, and it showed a kind of an anthropomorphic globe, you know, this globe bug-eyed, sitting on the ring in, in Yankee Stadium. It was as if saying the eyes of the world are upon this fight. 
Lewis had lost the first fight, you know, but Lewis had trained hard for this fight. Before the fight, a friend came up to Lewis and said, Joe, you know, what do you think? And Lewis had said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> the friend said, what? You know, that's not what you want to hear when the fighter's going into the ring. Uh, Lewis says, yeah, I'm scared. I'm, you know, I'm scared I'm going to kill this guy. <laughs> okay, now that's a little bit more like it. Lewis had a strategy. His strategy was he was not going to give Schmeling time to get set because that's what happened in the first fight. He gave Schmeling time to set, and Schmeling was able to land a, a series of right hands that took Lewis out over a period of rounds. So Lewis, from the very beginning, goes after Schmeling. And he hits Schmeling hard one time, good right. Schmeling kind of leans into the ropes and grabs the ropes to hold himself up. And then Lewis starts to hit him on the side of the face with his right hand, and Schmeling, almost you can see him, leans even further where his face is almost outside of the ring. So Lewis goes to work on the body, and as Schmeling is rotating around to his left, he exposes, really, his back to Lewis. And Lewis hits him a shot in the kidneys, breaks a vertebrae, and if you're hit hard enough in the kidney, it, it will temporarily paralyze you, mm -hmm. and you can see it. Schmeling, when, it, when that shot landed, people at ringside and further back heard Schmeling scream. I mean, fighters are very stoic individuals. They, they do not scream when they're fighting. Uh, Schmeling screamed. I mean, he shrieked in pain. And Lewis then, you know, comes, Schmeling gets off the ropes, the referee breaks him, Lewis knocks him down, Schmeling gets up, knocked down again, Schmeling gets up, knocked down again, and finally, you know, the, the Schmeling's corner tries to stop the fight, the referee pushes the tile away, but then just waves it off, the fight's over, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Less, than, less than the first round. So this would be a good point to ask, what, what made Joe Lewis uh, a great boxer? You know, he's, he's considered the greatest heavyweight champion. What, what was it that made him such a great boxer? Uh, he, was, he was calculating in the ring. Uh, he, was, he was a very unemotional fighter. Um, he, had a, he had a great jab. He had extraordinary reflexes. He trained a great deal with lighter fighters, mm -hmm. you know, even lightweights, welterweights. Uh, so he was really, he had very quick hands. Didn't have quick feet. He wasn't an owlie. He wasn't dancing around. He fought much flatter footed, mm -hmm. which is how he was trained to fight. Uh, and what made him the best is if Lewis hit a person, and he hit extraordinarily hard. If he hurt somebody, he was the best finisher in the history of boxing. If you were hurt against Joe Lewis, you were in trouble. Because he wasn't going to get, you know, just go at you and start throwing all kinds of wild punches. He was going to take his time, and he was going to land the shot that was going to knock you out. And he would knock people out. I mean, it's just punch. His timing of his punch was just so good that it just knocked people cold. And generally, when Lewis went into the ring, you know, after 35, 36, 37, most fighters were a little bit afraid yeah, because yeah. this guy was so good you know they had almost most of his contenders i think knew they were going to lose and if you go in the ring kind of knowing you're going to lose you're going to lose yeah 
So this gets off the subject of the of the book, or gets away from the scope of the book. But uh, could you talk about the the end of the story of of Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling because they do become friends toward uh, after their careers are over, correct? They become semi friends. Okay, I would say if you ask Joe Lewis, are you friends with Max Schmeling? Lewis would say, yeah. You know, Lewis would say he's friends with anybody. Okay, yeah, yeah. but were they good friends? No. Uh, now, Max Schmeling is a very interesting case, because Schmeling is identified with Nazi Germany. When the war ends, being identified with Nazi Germany is really not what you want if you're a German, okay? Uh, you, know, you want to be identified as anti-Nazi. And Schmeling, uh, you know, Schmeling will be, become a millionaire. Uh, he, he, he gets, he becomes a, a, a Coca-Cola distributor yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, in post-war Germany. And so one of the things that Schmeling is trying to do is to disassociate himself from his Nazi past. Not that he was ever a Nazi, but he certainly was, co- you know, his, his friends were Nazis. Um, and one way he could do this is by increasing his friendship with Joe Lewis. Mm-hmm. So Schmeling goes out of his way to say, oh, Joe's my good friend, my best friend. You know, I mean, Schmeling really encourages this idea that Lewis and Schmeling are really great friends because it helps him fit in with the American power structure after an economic structure after World War II. So it serves Schmeling's ends. Hmm. All right. Well, since we're talking about Joe Lewis's friends, I want to ask about his, uh, his private life. And uh, which you which you do discuss in in the book, and you describe him as uh, as we said earlier as serious as stoic in the ring. How his team was very careful to craft this image of Lewis as as respectable, the the opposite of Jack Johnson. But beyond the ring and beyond the view of the cameras, Lewis lived uh, could we say the the profligate life of a heavyweight champion? Is that correct? I think that's correct. You know, he was certainly never a Jack Johnson. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it wasn't as if the image that Lewis presented was entirely wrong. There was a lot of truth to it. But Lewis was, uh, you know, he was young, he was a world champion, he was rich, he was famous, and he enjoyed some of the... uh, some of the benefits, I guess, maybe you would put it, or some people would put it, of being a champion. So... He certainly dated, he certainly was involved with a number of women, black and white women. Um, you know, he enjoyed himself. He, uh, he spent money. Uh, he, was, he had to have been the most generous heavyweight champion ever. I mean, he just threw money away. He spent it, and he gave it away. Joe Lewis was, if you had a sad story, if you were a panhandler, if you went up to Joe Lewis and gave him a hard luck story, he was going to give you something. You know, Joe Lewis could leave his home in, in the morning with two or $300 on him, and by noon, he wouldn't have a penny on him. He, and he would have given most of it away. So, you know, he had a great sense of humor. But beyond that, he, you know, he was a pretty respectable, pretty respectable guy. I mean, he was, he, I guess the person that was the hardest person to be involved with with Joe Lewis was his wife, okay? He, he was not the best husband in the world. And when he eventually will have children, he's not really the best father in the world. You know, Joe Lewis kind of did what Joe Lewis wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But he was a nice guy. Everybody loved him. 
even his ex-wives loved him. I mean, he was a, he was a wonderful person. So I want to turn to the war and to Lewis's activities during the war. You you make the point in the book that uh, during the Second World War, Lewis went from being regarded as a credit to his race, to use the phrase of, of white sports writers, to being the representative of American manhood. So could you talk about his activities during the war and how he was presented during this period? Yes. He was presented as number one image of the unity of America during the war. You know, before the war, there were a lot of African-American intellectual journalists that were saying, you know, this problem that we have with Germany and Japan, that's a white problem. That's not a black problem. You know, I mean, we're fighting against, or we will, we're thinking even before Pearl Harbor, we are opposed to a German Nazi regime that is racist. Mm-hmm. You know, many black Americans said, well, take a look at the American South. Take a look at the American social scene. I mean, you know, there's racism in America, too. Uh, and Joe Lewis was seen as, okay, uh, you know, he is cooperating with kind of white America's vision of the international scene. And so there's some opposition to this. Now, after Pearl Harbor, there's an emphasis on unity. Joe Lewis emphasizes this unity. Even black Americans who join in a war effort, you know, they had what they called double V campaign, you know, victory in foreign affairs over Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, but victory over racism at home, too. You know, two Vs, the double V campaign. Joe Lewis speaks to American unity. Um, no sooner did the war was the, uh, break out, Pearl Harbor, than Joe Lewis will fight two fights and donate his money to the American government. You know, in, in January, he'll fight Buddy Bear. He'll defend his title. And he'll, def- he'll donate his entire purse to a Navy relief fund. And then shortly thereafter, uh, he will fight Abe Simon in March and donate his entire purse to a kind of an Army relief fund. So here is Joe Lewis pitching in to support the American war effort. He will then enlist in the Army, and he will tour bases, fighting exhibitions, uh, you know, trying to emphasize this idea of unity. Uh, he would not fight a, a Jim Crow exhibition. You know, all the exhibitions he has fight has to be before white and black troops. And recall, you know, our our forces in the, in World War II are segregated mm-hmm. forces. You know, we're not integrating the armed forces in World War II. And so during his time in the army, though, Lewis was an, an advocate on behalf of, of individual black soldiers who experienced discrimination, correct? Exactly right. As Lewis toured the camps, and particularly black camps, uh, army camps, you know, he would hear stories you know, of racism, of problems, because most of the camps are located in the deep south, and there are all sorts of problems. And if the problems could be corrected, Joe Lewis had contacts in the War Department, and he would call up. It was all done kind of sub-rosa, behind the scenes. But he would call up and say to his contacts, uh, a guy by the name of Truman Gibson, he'd say, look, Truman, here's a problem. Do something about it. Here's a guy that's having some trouble. Do something about it. And Truman Gibson was able to correct a number of the problems. 
So when he returned to the ring after the war, it was it was clear that Lewis's skills had had declined. Uh, he won a controversial decision over Jersey Joe Walcott in 1947, and then he defeated Walcott by knockout in 1948. And this was his his 25th defense of the title, which is the most of any heavyweight champion in history. But after that fight in 1949, Lewis announced his retirement as champion. However, as is the case with most great boxers, there was an attempt at a comeback. So could you tell us what what, what were the circumstances that drove Joe Lewis to get back in the ring? And then could you describe for us his, his last professional fight in 1951? Well, I think Lewis would have been happy to retire from the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that his ego was so invested in yeah. boxing that he had to come back. The problem with Lewis is he owed the IRS a lot of money. You know what will eventually pile up to be, you know, with penalties and all sorts of additions. You know, millions of dollars. So he had the only way he could make significant money was to come back. So he came back in 1950, and he's not, you know, he's he's an old fighter. I mean, he's he's been around too long. He's had too many fights. He's had, you know, counting exhibitions, hundreds of fights. And he he's, he he eventually he'll get a, a shot at the title in 1950, and he'll fight Ezra Charles, a very fine heavyweight, a very good boxer. Joe Lewis by this time his punch is kind of gone. He's old. He. You know, he, he doesn't move well, he's slow, and Ezra Charles beats him up. The fight goes the distance, it goes 15 rounds, but Joe Lewis is badly beaten up. Lewis still needs money, so he fights a series more fights against lesser fighters, people like Freddie Bayshore and Lee Saffold. Not, not bad fighters, but not great fighters. And then eventually he's matched in uh, 1951 in October against an up-and-coming fighter, by the name of Rocky Morciano. And Morciano is younger, he's ambitious, and worst of all for Joe Lewis, Morciano is a, an awkward fighter and he's a brutal puncher. You know, he's not a guy that outboxes or outpoints people. Marciano is a person that hurts other fighters. And Joe Lewis, for a few rounds, Joe Lewis, you know, for half the fight, five rounds. Joe Lewis looked pretty good, but then he started to tire, and as he started to tire, Rocky Morciano just came on and landed a series of crippling punches until finally he catches Lewis on the ropes, and there's this one sad overhand Marciano right that crushes against Lewis's head as Lewis is kind of leaning back, and Lewis goes down, and he falls out of the ropes, It falls through the ropes into the press row. There's a wonderful picture of Lewis as the reporters are helping him get back into the ring. And, you know, it's shot at an angle that you can kind of see Lewis's bald head, uh, you know, where he's losing his hair on top. And, you know, to me, that's always been, it always says to me, boy, he stayed around too long. He shouldn't have been around. And, you know, that was it. He lost the fight in defeat. He was generous. Uh, you know, he congratulated Rocky, but but that was it. His career was over. He fought some exhibitions after that, but his career was over. So rather than looking at, at Lewis's later years, his life after boxing, I'd like to ask about the, the legacy of his career as a boxer and his importance 
in American history in the 1930s and 40s. And in discussing Lewis's significance, you compare him not to another athlete of the time or a figure from popular culture. Instead, you compare him to Franklin Roosevelt. So could you talk about how you see these two figures, the, the boxing champion and the president, as analogous? Yeah. Lewis, Lewis added a, a dimension to American history. He added a, a humanity to American history. He added an awareness, just as Roosevelt did. You know, Roosevelt overcoming his physical disabilities said something about America and about people with disabilities and, and how all of our citizens have something to offer their country. Lewis really says the same thing. Lewis makes white America, for the first time, look at black Americans differently. Okay, Lewis's quiet dignity in and outside of the ring. Lewis's sacrificing during World War II. I mean, his career is, is abridged for essentially four years while he serves his country. Um, it said, you know, this is black America. You know, when Jackie Robinson broke the color line in baseball, one of the first things he said is, look, I couldn't have done this without Joe Lewis. You know, Joe Lewis set the pattern. Uh, Joe Lewis kind of set the pattern, I think, for Martin Luther King. And, and, and his insistent but, but dignified, quiet integration form of a kind of a passive resistance um, uh, in, in, in the 1950s. So Joe Lewis, I think, was very important to the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s. Yes, eventually the movement moved beyond kind of this passive, quiet, dignified Joe Lewis stands and becomes more insistent. But Joe Lewis kind of begins the movement. So we're almost out of time, Randy, but uh, let me ask you to, to finish up. What is, what is the one Joe Lewis fight that you wish you could have attended? So ringside seats, which one you, would you have liked to see? Boy, that's a tough question. Undoubtedly, Lewis Schmeling too is the most significant fight to, that, I, that I would have liked to have seen. But from a purely competitive standpoint, probably Lewis Kahn. Uh, you know, I was, I was born outside of Pittsburgh. I love Pittsburgh fighters, and Billy Kahn was a Pittsburgh fighter. And Billy Kahn, boy, he had that fight won uh, going into the 13th round um, when, Lewis will, when Lewis takes him out. Uh, and, you know, to me, that would have been to see that fight on, at, at, at Madison Square, excuse me, at Yankee Stadium on, in June of 1941, uh, when, when, when Khan had it won and he went for a knockout and Lewis caught him and finished him, that would have been a heck of a fight to see. And so what are you working on now? Right now I'm, I'm working on a book that deals with um, Bear Bryant and, and football in Alabama in the 1960s. But you also have a new book that, that was just released, correct? That's right. Uh, a book that had just came out in uh, late November is a book called A Team for America, the Army-Navy Game that Rallied a Nation. And it's about kind of Colonel Red Blake's The Coach of Army's War. Uh, it, it, it's about Blake going to West Point when West Point was terrible 
in uh, 1940, West Point was just terrible. And after the 40 season, a new superintendent of West Point, a guy by the name of Michael Berger, hired Red Blake. And his, Blake's mission was give us a team that will reflect the best of our cadets and make the Army proud. And so it's about Red Blake building up this team that in 1944 wins the national championship. And uh, I love doing this book because I got to, you know, I interviewed a number of the players uh, that played on the team and I got their voices in it. And it's just, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great story. It's a story of the home front, of the battle front, of American World War II, of the role of football in World War II and in American culture. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So are you up for talking about that on, on New Books and Sports? Oh, I'd love to talk about it. That's the one that's forefront in my mind right now. Okay. All right, all right. Well, well, we'll schedule the rematch then. Okay, I'd love it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on talking about Joe Lewis, Randy. I enjoyed it a great deal. You've been listening to an interview with Randy Roberts about his book, Joe Lewis, Hard Times Man, published in paperback in 2012 by Yale University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and we are now available on the Stitcher app for iPhone and Android. Please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us your feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.